Hey everybody, it's Chris Perry, Christ Church of Central Arkansas, and thank you for listening to this podcast. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, it's June 5th, and we're focusing in on uh, reconstructing the Pauline worship service, and specifically reconstructing how Paul would do practically the Lord's Supper. It's uh, it's a really unique study. Now, we're in the middle of a series on the Lord's Supper understanding it from the New Testament perspective. So by way of review, I want to cover a couple of things. And if you're listening for the first time, there's going to be some vocab that are going to be a little challenging. First of all, the Eucharist is a word used by traditions such as the Catholic Church or uh, the Orthodox Church, Anglican, etc., Episcopals, who are going to uh, refer specifically to the Lord's Supper or taking the bread and taking the wine. Now, uh, sometimes uh, it's just it's just used euphemistically to describe um, a service itself, or come and we're going to do the Eucharist together. Uh, a liturgy is actually an order of service in these, these kinds of churches. So uh, sacramentalism, you know, hey, take this bread, take this wine, it's going to change you. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you believe you're getting pieces of salvation kind of incrementally. It's critical to experiencing grace and salvation. Um, so these are some big words that are that are important to us in this series that we're in right now. Okay, um, by way of reminder, 1954, let's try that again. In 1054 AD, we have something known as the Great Schism which is a period in church history when the actual the Catholic Church broke off of the Orthodox Church, and I did say that correctly. Um, a lot happened then. Um, the Orthodox held that uh, the Lord's Supper should be done with leavened bread, the bread of life, the bread of celebration, and the Catholics held to the belief that the Lord's Supper should be done with unleavened bread, which is the bread of suffering, the bread of urgency. So, okay, um, a few Sundays ago, I presented to you another teaching that's fascinating, that when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they clearly embed and anchor the Last Supper in the Passover holiday, this big Jewish holiday. It was more than just a one-day event. It was a week-long event. And you would think... Because the Last Supper is anchored into the Passover, you would think Jesus would not say, take this bread. He breaks the loaf. This bread is my body. As my body is broken, so the loaf of bread is broken. You'd think he wouldn't say that because it's a Passover-oriented holiday. Instead, you would think Jesus would say, hey, this lamb is my body, slaughtered for you. Take it and eat it. That makes a whole lot more sense, but Jesus didn't say that. He said, take it, this is my body, in reference to a loaf of bread. Fascinating. Uh, we've already discovered uh, in, our, uh, in, in this series that there are a lot of ways we can perceive what happens with the bread and the wine when we take that at the Lord's Supper. Again, the Catholic tradition, Orthodox tradition is going to say that the bread and wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus, and that's known as transubstantiation. 
Lutherans uh, identify this as consubstantiation, uh, also known as the, the doctrine of ubiquity, which means Jesus is popping up everywhere on the, that little wafer. He's under it, over it, in it, all around it. Functionally, it sounds like a wordplay and a semantic splitting of hairs between the Catholic view and the Lutheran view. And in a way, that's true. If he's in it, over it, under it, all around it, through it, then come on, you know, not a whole lot of difference than saying it, it's, it transubstantiates. Um, but the fact is, you know, Luther really wanted to make a break with the Catholic Church and prove that he was seeing things uh, with, a, with a more um, accurate biblical view than what they had done. So Luther called it consubstantiation. And um, another view is going to be the spiritual view. This was started by uh, John Calvin. And John believed, you know, Calvin believed that it actually uh, uh, was sacred and that it did become the flesh and blood of Jesus, but only in the spiritual sense. So another tradition that we um, we understand is that what's called the Zwinglian view by Ulrich Zwingli. And he developed the view that, hey, you know what? This is really just about memorializing and remembering, which is actually the command of Jesus anyway. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's not about it mystically becoming flesh and blood. It's not about it, uh, you know, giving you some incrementally some piece of heaven or some some piece of salvation. It's none of those things. It's just simply we're remembering, reflecting uh, on what Jesus accomplished for us. Now, I present a fifth view, and I've identified this view as what is called the indwelling, the indwelling Christ and the interactive judgment view. And what I mean by this view is that, first of all, uh, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you experience the new birth, John 3, 3, Jesus Christ is inside of you. John 15 teaches this. And, you know, Jesus doesn't pop out of you right before the Lord's Supper so he can pop back into the bread and the, and the wine so that we can, oh, well, wow, there's Jesus and he's here for us and we're going to get him on the inside. No, he's already on the inside. He is the indwelling Christ. He will never leave you, never forsake you. So when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, he doesn't mysteriously show up. He's already in you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. So therefore, it's Zwingli's on to something. We do have to remember and reflect. <clears throat> but it's not as though it's a memorial in the sense of some past event that is meaningless uh, to us now as moderns. No, because he's in us and will never leave us and forsake us. When we remember his sacrificial work on the cross, we can reflect and be deeply moved by what he did for us and motivates us literally to walk out our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, but I got to, hey, let's throw a nod to Calvin. Sure, it's spiritual. Something really spiritual is happening. Absolutely. Um, the second part of my view, the fifth view, indwelling Christ, interactive judgment, is that when you do the Lord's Supper, you're actually taking judgment upon yourself, meaning by that how you treat people at the Lord's Supper and how you treat people at church, essentially, 
determines much of your relationship to Christ and also uh, puts you in a position to incur uh, negatively the judgment of God, even to the point that Paul says that some have lost their lives. So this is absolutely a horrific thing. Okay, moving on in this review of what we've covered already. I also talked about what's called the Christian Jesus Body of Christ Pollutant Schema. Sounds sounds really complicated, kind of is. Hang with me. What we need to understand is that uh, an individual Christian, his relationship to Jesus, his relationship to the church of Jesus, and to some sinful person or sinful behavior, literally all interact. If you can imagine like atoms and, and protons and electrons all buzzing around each other, you get a little bit of the idea that there's a constant interaction between a Christian and another Christian, between a Christian and Jesus, the church, and then this thing I'm calling a pollutant. And when you get these four things uh, and they all are constantly interacting, you have what's called shared influence or coterminity. That's when separate things come to the same place. So my point is this. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, what, do you guys not understand that if you attach yourself to a prostitute, that you are one with her? And do you not understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So by implication, that uh, anyone who is going by a local fertility cult in Corinth and engaging in the giving of a sexual behavior or receiving a sexual behavior as a part of a fertility ritual and thinking it's going to bring blessings on the city, that you are actually bringing Jesus in in that situation. And if you understand the full import of what Paul is saying, that is horrifically offensive because the Christian is not just the individual. He has the Holy Spirit inside of him. She has Jesus inside of her. And that being the case, when she engages in, in a polluting sinful behavior or with a polluting sinful person, that is affecting Jesus. Okay, And that affects the church. So there is literally four powerful dynamics. The Christian himself... Jesus himself, the body of Christ, the church, and then this pollutant, this sinful idea, false doctrine, sinful behaviors, uh, as well as sinful people that when engaged with literally affect, impact the entire dynamic between Jesus, the church, and a Christian. So super intense stuff. Okay, let's see. Um... So let's dig in here. Let's let's move into this, the primary teaching of this lecture, which is going to be on how do we reconstruct an ancient worship service, a Pauline worship service, and how the Lord's Supper is a part of that. So there are several things. First of all, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, here's here's what we've got. This is verse verse 14. Um, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, remember, this is 1 Corinthians 10. I speak to you as wise people. You then judge what I say. Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in koinonia, fellowship, uh, intimacy, interaction, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. 
for we all partake of the one loaf. Notice this interactive language, right? Look at the people of Israel. All those who eat the sacrifices, are they not partners in the altar? What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become fellowshipped with, partners with, or share with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have fellowship with the table of the Lord and fellowship at the table with demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do we think we can overpower God, the Lord? Are we trying to do that? Pretty intense stuff from from Paul. So what's happening? Let's reconstruct the situation at Corinth. So the the church at Corinth was was literally embedded in this culture that's called polytheistic. There were there were a myriad of local gods, regional, national gods, and global gods that that that, that were fully integrated into the politic, the the social dynamics, the financial dynamics of the Greco-Roman world, coming out of Greek culture, coming out of Roman culture, paganism on all kinds of levels. And Christianity is trying to surface and grow in this environment. Now, if you're a Christian, that means from the perspective of a Roman, that if you don't honor the local fertility cult, if you don't honor uh, what's called the imperial cult, which means you have to gesture a worshipful act uh, to the Caesar or on behalf of the Caesar... And, and a myriad of the other cults and cultic, uh, almost kiosks that you're going to walk by, just going to market or coming back from market, etc. If you don't honor those, you act like an atheist. And as a Christian, acting as an atheist against the cults and the religions, pagan religions of the Greco-Roman world, you are a troublemaker. Because if you don't honor these gods and goddesses at the local, regional, national level, etc., then when they become mad and they judge the city, they judge the area with famine, with war, with disease, all kinds of things, or cattle and livestock are not breeding, etc., then it's your fault. There was tremendous pressure for Christians to maintain an integrated and supportive posture towards uh, their, the cities in which they live in. And that includes Crete, that includes Ephesus, it includes Corinth, and, and certainly Rome. All right, so Paul is saying, look, there's a lot of interaction, there's a lot of things going on. Now, when it comes to the worship service, now Paul pulls out of that marketplace scene, now we're inside the Pauline church scene. First Corinthians 11, Paul says this about women. If a woman does not cover her head, have her also cut her hair off. However, do you do that? No, for it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Have her cover her head. For a man should not have his head covered since he's in the image and glory of God, but the woman is of the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, 
but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge yourself. Is it proper proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor have the churches of God. Fascinating. All right. This is our first kind of glimpse into a Pauline worship service. And scholars like Jerome Murphy O'Connor and others, C.K. Barrett and others, have demonstrated that what is going on here is that we have leaders in the Corinthian church who are, uh, to borrow a phrase from Richard Hayes, kind of gender-bending they're pushing social limits, um, and they're really, they're really starting to model a view that is against the model of Genesis one and two, Genesis one, two, and three, really, and and that women are not acting like women, and men are not acting like men. They're bending their gender roles and their purposes. And Paul says, "Not going to have any of that." And so he he draws straight from this phenomenal Jewish tradition that in Genesis, God created the male and the female and created order and and defines how a male and a female relate to each other. So Paul goes back to that as an answer that people can't lead. These people, in all likelihood, I agree with Murphy O'Connor, they're leading in church, possibly leading at the Lord's Supper. Paul says, nope, no can do. We're not going to accept that. You can't engage in gender bending and literally getting involved in pagan cultic ideas about what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female, and be a leader in church. Can't do it. Not going to put up with it. I don't want a woman shaving her head. First of all, not only is she uh, bending her gender identity, she is also acting like a prostitute. Okay, that was a cue and a, and a, a symbol of uh, women engaging in what would be considered uh, very anti-Christian behaviors, plus a woman who would let her hair loose, flail her hair about, also is a reference to uh, ecstatic behaviors that many females were, would engage in in certain cults like the Dionysian cult as well as fertility cults and things like that. So, so what I'm getting at here in the first century church those who are going to be a part of the service and lead the service need to be walking with God's original design uh, as, as men and women. That's just getting started. All right, here we go. Let's look at this. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 11, continuing chapter 11, 17 to 22. Now, in giving this instruction to you, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there also have to be factions among you, so that those who are approved 
may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For when you eat, each one takes his own supper first, and one takes and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What I am what am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I do not praise you. Paul is really, really upset at this point. This is not a good situation for Paul. So what I want you to notice about this part of the text uh, simply is this, that Paul is describing how they do church at Corinth. He's saying, hey, is not the main reason why we gather? Is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? Okay. So this being the case, we need to appreciate that the worship service that Paul uh, intends for his churches and that uh, that literally becomes their routine is first and foremost a meal, Depnon, the Lord's Supper, a meal. And uh, this being the case, um, it's appreciated that the church, let's see, um, the church in Corinth was probably around 30 to 50 people in size, which is a, a fascinating idea. We th- almost think of the church in Corinth as some, you know, what we would say today using church lingo, like a mega church or something. No, uh, it, it was anywhere between 30 to 50 and that it was meeting in the house of a wealthy uh, church member that provided the space. So can you imagine 30 to 50 people getting together for a kind of potluck at church at this house? And while they're there, the rich people are, are making power gestures against the poor people to make sure that it's obvious there's what's called social stratification. You're, you know, you're in group B, stay over there. We're in group A, stay over here. And you guys in group C, you, you stay over there. Um, uh, Gerd, by the way, Gerd Thiessen, a brilliant scholar, uh, has given us a lot of insight on what's going on from a social perspective. So you've got people getting drunk. You've got people that are, that are like gluttons and they're eating up all the food, the, the best food, the the most uh, volumes of food, the biggest portions, and then they're drinking so much wine that they're actually getting drunk. So Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? If you're going to gesture uh, status glory by the food you eat and how much you eat, you need to do that at home is what he's essentially saying. So, all right, let's push through. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, continuing, verse 23, For what I received from the Lord, that's what I've delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You might remember the, the view that Ulrich Zwingli endorses, called the memorial view. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often 
as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then at verse 27, Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, herself, and in so doing, he or she is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, herself, if he or she does not properly recognize the body. Remember my view, the fifth view, the indwelling Christ interacting judgment view is based right on this right here, okay? That when you take the Lord's Supper, you take the bread and the wine, and you do that without probably recognizing the body of Christ, you are taking, you're, in, you're engaging, you're activating a judgment against yourself that is negative. It is not good. It's the judgment that proves that you're unrighteous, not righteous, okay? And uh, Paul goes on to say, For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and even a number of you have died, all right? So taking the Lord's Supper is a very, very serious matter, all right? All right, a couple more things. Let's work through the, the following characteristics about um, an ancient first century Pauline church. Number one, Males and females converted to Christ and brought beliefs and behaviors from these pagan cults into the church, like radical distortions of gender, uh, distortions on sexuality, sexual activity, and ecstatic, frenzied mental states. So you've got, for example, um, uh, some scholars who specialize in ancient studies in the first century world, these women letting their hair down and they literally genuflex and they're throwing their heads back and forth, flailing their hair back and forth in a frenzied state, thinking this is going to please the local you know, pagan god at a particular cult. Well, some women brought that to church and Paul says, no way, no way, get your hair covered up. Uh, number two, the poor may have been the ones going to the local temple to eat meat sacrificed to idol at no cost if they gestured worship. They couldn't afford it. It's the only way they're going to get meat. The rich may have attended local cults to ensure social status and to secure new business. They're networking in the big church. Think about that. If you're an insurance agent and you're a Christian and you really want to build your business, you're young, you know, why would you go to a tiny church where you're going to shake hands with 10 people when you can go to a, a church of several thousand and network and really build your, you know, build your network? So sounds terrible, doesn't it? Does it sound like I'm judgmental? Guess what? Happens all the time. And guess what? It happened in the first century church as well. All right, number three, let's talk about a meal that, that's going to be new to you. It's called an eranos meal. Eranos in Greek, and this is what Eranos meal means. It's essentially, uh, it means equal, equal exchanging or reciprocity. I'm going to bring two pounds of food and you're going to do the same. Everyone's going to bring their equal share. And if I honor you with the food that I bring and you honor me with the food that you bring, then an Eranos dynamic kicks in. And we're going to kind of trust each other. And the original Eranos meals were part of the banking industry in Rome. 
And if I could trust you over some food, maybe I could trust you over some money. And at that point, you have literally the issuing of loans and the paying back of loans being tied together in a meal. Do some research. You're going to find uh, the name Aranas is associated even with bank loans. It's fascinating today, okay? So, um, number four, the traditional Greco-Roman dinner party would oftentimes take place in at least two phases. You had a first table during which several courses were served. Uh, they would be followed, followed by a break. This would be then uh, moved to a symposium, a drinking party, where there would be a second table with new food. Sometimes new guests arrive and, arrive and, and desserts might be served. And then possibly then um, the problems of the Corinthian church were caused by rich Christians coming to first table, eating up the best of the food, drinking up the best of the wine, and then the poor having come to second table and leftover bread and leftover wine is what, what they have left and they can do their little ritual and go, yeah, this bread is his body. Oh, yeah, the cup, that's his blood, and drink it. And they need to be grateful because they got to do the Lord's Supper. So um, that's really, really heartbreaking, right? First table, second table, possibly is what was going on at Corinth. All right, number five, the problem of stratification, the layering, the social layering of high-status, low-status people so the problem of stratification at the Lord's Supper table was intensified when the host's home invited personal friends for dinner of equal or higher social status. If they did that, and they certainly did, the host was obligated to give those guests larger portions of higher quality food to make sure that the honor-shame dynamic was in order. Uh, give them generous amounts of wine, for example, and the best seating on the right couches, the cleaning. These guests began eating before the lower class slaves would have arrived. Christians were struggling with, uh, with their position as, as being slaves and having to work uh, very exorbitant hours by comparison to a free person. Number six, Paul's directive to eat at home may reveal the belief that food brought to table was considered private property. And those who participated participated in this factious, schismatic, these groups with their own social and theological sympathizers tended to demonstrate something horrible at the meal of compassion, their inability to share food with a common grace. Please appreciate that. Uh, and by the way, this is a part of the work of Gerd Thiessen, uh, and I think Gerd is, is really onto it here, that remember, when Jesus, when Jesus was at the Last Supper, he said, it's the bread and the wine that I want you to reflect and remember me by, okay? He didn't say it was the pot roast, the carrots, the potatoes, and the really nice salad, or anything like that. He just said the bread and the wine. So what Tyson is is suggesting is that when these people brought this potluck kind of all these foods to this church meal, like an Aranos meal or a Greek symposium, um, it is very possible that it was believed to be private property. And 
it is the bread and the wine that is considered public property. And so if, if me and my family, we brought our, you know, we brought a bucket of chicken with all the fixings and we sit down, we're going to make sure that, that that food that we brought is just at our table and we're going to eat it and no one else is going to eat from our bucket of chicken. Okay, that may be the idea that, that would best communicate this to you. Okay, all right. Number seven, the outcome of forcing Greco-Roman social cultural norms for meal sharing onto what Paul calls the agape feast in, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts as well. The agape feast, the love meal of the Lord's Supper resulted in the humiliation of the poor. Absolutely shaming of the poor. All right, number eight. It is probable that the poor were penalized for not bringing their share. Remember that Aaron's meal? Equal, equal, everybody bring something about the same. Furthermore, by coming late, they were entitled only to second table, and they're expected to eat the leftover bread and drink the leftover wine. The wine, by the way, would have been uh, diluted down and the poorest of the wine. And then lastly, when you combine this kind of arrogance and this kind of indifference to the poor, you get this compassionless dynamic for a meal of compassion. And you can appreciate the, uh, the contradiction of that. This is supposed to be an agape feast, a love meal, a mercy meal, compassion meal, and you've got the rich uh, and other people refusing to share or refusing to wait so that those who uh, arrive late to the meal would have something to eat, that they're really, there's no compassion. It's a gesture of hate and isolation, not love and acceptance. So a merciless meal of mercy, a compassionless meal of compassion. Uh, this is an extremely Pauline idea. Uh, Paul says, look, as the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive others. As you have received mercy, uh, share mercy. He has given to you freely. You should give freely. Uh, Paul really pushes this idea throughout his writings, his epistles, that as Jesus has treated us, so we are to treat other people. And this uh, is clearly illustrated at the Lord's Supper table. So, okay. Um, when we recognize and honor Jesus in the Christian, in the church, we are moving toward uh, understanding the heart of the Lord's Supper, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, because the one who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment because they don't recognize the body. If I could give a theological uh, perspective on that verse, verse 29, 1 Corinthians 11, I would say this. You, you eat and drink judgment to yourself because you can't recognize Jesus in the individual sitting across from you. If you can't see Jesus in the individual and in the group, you will not honor them. So very important. Okay. Um, uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. I know it's been long, about 35 minutes or so. I appreciate you doing it. Uh, this is going to be uploaded and available, um, through, uh, our website, discoverchristchurch.com. And you can also, um, uh, 
find it on our app as well, which is uh, which is something I want all of you guys to get. So much love and grace to everybody. If you have any questions, please uh, email them to me, Chris Perry at discoverchristchurch.com, and I would be glad to field those for you. I'm going to try to put some notes and some of my research on this. Uh, up on our website and uh, if you want to go deeper with it. So blessings to all. Take care. Bye.